even though we're surrounded by people, maybe a lot of people, that we can still find ourselves feeling very much alone. It's generally not a good feeling. It might happen when we relocate to a new town or start out at a new school or a new job or after we graduate or retire. It can happen when we lose someone very close to us with whom our lives have been bound for many years or when those with whom our lives are bound really don't hear us or connect with us or know us or the things that we dream about or the things that we feel the most committed to. It may be a relatively short-lived experience, or at times it might seem like it never really ever fully goes away. But however long it persists, the ache that it produces often has far less to do with the number of people that are present as it does with how present the people around us actually are or perhaps how present we are to them. For the past couple of weeks now, we've been spending a lot of time in Genesis chapter 1, and last week we began with Genesis 2. We've been reflecting together on the biblical creation story. And as we continue to move through that account this morning, we find embedded right here in the middle of chapter 2, God making a curious sort of pronouncement one that resonates down to the very core of who we are and which I think speaks directly to the experience I've been talking about this morning. It's found there in Genesis 2, verse 18, right in the middle of the chapter. And it's this. It is not good, God says. It is not good for us to be alone. It's, it's almost startling in its contrast to the other powerful statements we've been noticing God making all the way along, each step of the way through the creation process in chapter 1, where each time we hear God saw that it was good. And then suddenly here in the middle of chapter 2, before we hear anything about anyone eating from the wrong tree, and in the midst of the most perfect setting you could possibly imagine or wish for, we have God looking at the whole situation, and for the first time in scripture, he utters the words, it is not good. It is not good. So what's, what's going on here? I mean, you know, obviously it's not that something evil or destructive has been added to the creation process. That's still a whole chapter away in chapter three. Sin's not here yet. But rather... It is that in the middle of this creation that has already been pronounced as good, at least as far as it goes. There is something significant. There is something vital that remains as yet unfinished, which is not yet complete. And God says that this is not good. It is not good to be alone. What I'd like to suggest to you this morning is that we get some good insight into what is actually going on in this passage when we realize that this story that's unfolding in chapter 2 is probably best read between verse 26 of chapter 1, which begins with the account of the beginning of the creation of mankind, and verse 31, where God pronounces it all very good when he is finished. It's as we move from God's pronouncement of a good creation in verse 25 in chapter 1, 
through the tension that the not good arises with in chapter 2, that we arrive back again with a sense of resolution and maybe a little bit of insight at the very good that God finally pronounces in verse 31 again in chapter 1. So now that I've lost you taking through all those numbers and verses, let's see if we can notice how this journey begins. If we just slip back to verse 26 in Genesis chapter 1. Listen to how this begins. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. Presumably, we would assume here in a way that reflects the image in which they've been created. God says, in our image, in our likeness. And while it's true that the using of the plural term here, our, in doing that, the author is not trying to teach us anything about the doctrine of the Trinity. That didn't come until much later. But it's rather using something that's called the plural of majesty, where you sometimes hear royalty referring to themselves as plural. Our royal highnesses, our royal majesties. Even though that's not what the author is trying to do, it is interesting that what we do find here when we read on in verse 27 are hints of what would later become one of the core theological foundations that that doctrine would be built on. Notice what it says as it continues in verse 27. So God created mankind in God's own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It suggests to us that reflecting God's image is not something that happens in isolation, but rather something that happens in the context of relationships. Which, of course, should make good sense to us when you consider that the Bible tells us that God is love. And love only has meaning when you talk about it in the context of a relationship. Love is not something you can have all by yourself. It's something that is shared between beings. And so the implication is that God, by his very nature and being, is therefore relational. If you want to put it in a more crude way, you would say that God is himself, or God's self, a relationship. Which, it actually turns out, is what the doctrine of the Trinity actually says. But in any case, what we see here is why it would then take more than one of us, people living in relationships with each other, to fully reflect God's image. It reminds us that the image we're created to reflect is both relational and personal. And indeed, those are two very powerful threads that we find now weaving themselves together into this tapestry that we find in chapter 2. I'd like for you just to notice with me a little bit of how this pattern emerges in this tapestry. Tapestry. Got too many R's in my sentence. As we begin to look at some places here where we can see it a little bit more clearly. The first place to look is right here in verse 8. Listen to what it says. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food, and in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, I don't know if you heard it in the language there, but you can pick up the relationality of what's happening. It doesn't say that God simply created or commanded vegetation, but that God planted a garden. Have you ever planted a garden? 
there's a sense of personal touch about what God is doing here. A well-crafted garden, pleasing to the eye, with attention to beauty and proportion, and the passage says, full of all kinds of good stuff. This is a setting in which life is about much more than just consumption and survival, but about enjoyment and beauty and art. It's not just about growing crops and packaging food. God is planting a garden. He's creating a home. This is personalized creative work that's being done in the context of a relationship out of the overflow of a relationship. A kind of relationship, as is indicated by the placement of the two trees there, that is based on free will and ongoing trust. It's a beautiful picture. Well, you get this kind of feel again if you just back up one verse and notice the way that it describes how Adam himself was created. Listen to the language here. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Again, what you see portrayed here is not God just commanding life into existence, but an act of shaping and drawing close, and becoming intimately connected, breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam becomes alive. You see these threads again beginning to weave this pattern as we watch how it unfolds one more time in verse 15, where another part of the story begins. Watch what happens here. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. To work it and to care for it. And you know, with all that God had provided Adam at this point in so many ways, we might be tempted to think that this actually should be enough. There was plenty to do. This was a beautiful place. There was much to enjoy. There was an infinite number of things for him to invest his energy in. And yet, it is precisely at this point in the story, as Adam begins to now interact with the rest of creation, that we hear God's take on Adam's experience. It's right there in verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. And although Adam could not have known it yet, God was not finished. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper, a companion, someone suitable for him. And then in a curious sort of way that would help Adam to more fully grasp the significance of what God was about to do, beginning with verse 19, we read about how God invites Adam to participate in something that was very significant, something very important. God begins to bring the animals to him to be named. Now, you'll remember that in the ancient world, names are much more than merely labels that you assign to something so you can figure out what the right box is that it goes in. It's the way that we tend to think about names. In fact, what we often see in scripture is that a person's name frequently tells us something about them, about their character, about who they really were. In fact, when something significant happens in a person's life, sometimes their name is changed to reflect what has taken place. Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob becomes Israel. 
We watch this kind of thing happen all through Scripture. You see, to name someone is to understand them. Sometimes it means to have influence over them. But however you look at it, what it does is it changes and impacts the way that you relate to them. And so in naming the animals here, it's much more about just labeling biological organisms so you can classify them in a reference book somewhere for a class. But it's about understanding these living creatures and figuring out what it means to relate to them as someone who is there to reflect the God who had created him. Naming is a way of personalizing a relationship and has significant and profound implications. I like the way that Madeline Engel comments on this story in Genesis 2 in one of her books. Here's what she writes. When Adam named the animals, he made them real. My dog is named Timothy, and my cat is named Titus. Farmers do not let their children name the animals who are going to be slaughtered or put into a pot. You see, it is not easy to eat a ham that you have known as Wilbur, or a chicken that is called Flossie. See, when we know and are known by name, the relationship changes. We interact differently. And by the same token, when we stop naming, when we depersonalize other people or relationships, it then becomes much easier for us to act in hurtful and destructive kinds of ways, which is why when people are sent into battle, they are specifically trained not to name. You have to do that, or you could never do it. And so when we substitute a label like enemy for a person's name, they now become an object, and we feel that we can act differently towards them. In fact, it's when we depersonalize that we can find ourselves acting in ways that under any other circumstance, we would be horrified to even contemplate. It's a powerful thing when we name or choose not to which helps us to understand why Jesus is so explicit about telling us, at least if we're serious about wanting to be his children, that we need to pray for our enemies, which is, in fact, a form of naming. It's a way of personalizing them once again. It forces you to change the relationship. And what's so intriguing to me is that we find this activity of naming embedded right here in the middle of the creation story, as a part of what it means for Adam to realize what it means to be created in God's image. And while there's a lot more that probably could and should be talked about here, the part of the story we need to get back to this morning is the sense that Adam begins to come to now that he's involved in this process, now that he's beginning to interact in the world this way. Because even though he probably would not have been able to articulate it at the time, what I think we see Adam starting to sense here is that in order for him to really interact with the world that way, in order to really have a relationship with creation in the way he's being invited to, it was going to need to flow out of the context of a relationship where he was experiencing that kind of love and that kind of personal care himself. He was going to need to know what that was in order for it to flow out of him to give it to someone else. But... As the scripture passage observes, Adam had no one like himself to be in relationship with. He had no place to experience friendship and community with another person like him, to know and to love, to be known and be loved by. 
a relationship that would form the basis for what it would mean for him now to care for the world in a way that would reflect God's image. And so as this awareness begins to take shape, the story tells us that God puts Adam to sleep. And as Adam is sleeping, he removes one of his ribs, takes some of his own DNA, and it's described this way in verse 22. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, someone like me, who I can know and be known by in the same way. And in this cry of delight and welcome, he calls her woman, one who's been taken out of him, one who is like him, but even more than that, one who complements him. And it's with this establishment of community for the very first time, a personal relationship that is now possible, where we can know and be known by others who are both like us and who complement us in significant ways, that they together become beings in whom the image of God can be reflected and the image of God becomes complete. It includes both male and female working together in community. And while being married is not necessary in order for us to experience what it means to be in supportive love and communities with each other, places where the image of God is reflected, or to put it in other words, you don't have to be married in order to fully reflect God's image, The writer of Genesis 2 does go on to note that one of the very special, powerful ways that community is experienced and that God's image is further reflected is in that unique, sacred commitment of marriage, a commitment that provides a secure, exclusive, safe, and uniquely intimate context in which people often experience the joy of bringing new life into the world and just a bit of the Creator's joy when he contemplates creation. And, of course, there's a lot more that we could say about this as well that's embedded in the story. But all of this brings us back again, finally, to verse 31 of chapter 1, where at the end of the creation week now, a Sabbath is about to come upon them for the first time, come upon them for the first time, not just him. We read this in verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It was very good. What we see here in the story that unfolds in Genesis 2 is that whatever the situation is that we find ourselves in, married or single, widowed or whatever, we are created to be together in community. It is truly not good for us to be alone. We need to be with others where we can be named and named where in the best sense of the word, everything becomes personal. Whereas a part of our own and our extended families, we together can then reflect the image of God to each other and to the world that we are called to be a presence in. That's why we're here this morning. And that's why on special occasions like this, we pause as a community together to recognize both the image in which we were created as well as how we have allowed that image to become distorted and obscured and marred. 
and to celebrate together with grateful hearts the grace that makes the restoration of that image possible. We do it in what we've celebrated this morning by washing each other's feet, by gathering together as family around this table, by consciously making the choice to put labels aside and to name and be named in our midst and outside of our community as well. We gather to celebrate this at a table where everyone, everyone is welcome. It's a place where we hold the emblems that remind us that Jesus was willing to become bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh so we could more fully understand that relationship, even though it meant his body breaking and his flesh becoming torn and bloody. It's a meal in which he is named by us in the emblems, and we are named by him as we partake of them. And because of what we celebrate and because of his incredible grace, it's a place that we are invited and able to stand once again as our first parents did, before him and before each other, as the closing verses of Genesis 2 describe it, both naked as we really are, and once again unashamed. It's a powerful thing that we gather to celebrate. And so it's with that realization this morning that I would invite you to join us together at the table as we share in the emblems together, as we name and allow ourselves to be named again, and allow what we carry with us from this table to remind us of what our presence in the world is to be as we do the same. I'd like to invite you to participate now. Let's pray over the emblems before we start. Father in heaven, we are grateful this morning that you have been willing to become bone of our bones, flesh of our flesh, and that in these emblems that represent your body given to us and broken, and your blood given to us in the wine shed and poured out, that we recognize you and name you and hear your voice naming us once again. We pray that you would give us the grace and the wisdom and the courage to be able to allow what we see happening here and what we celebrate to change our relationship not only with you, but with each other and the lives that our lives touch. We pray for your blessing now on these emblems as we share and partake in them. We pray in Jesus' name. For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'd like to invite you at this time to partake of the emblems together. Amen. 
We'd like to invite you as you take just a few moments to reflect on what we are doing and sharing together. And as Barry sings, to uh, continue just to offer to God in your own hearts your praise, uh, your gratefulness, the richness of what this service means. And as an expression of that, uh, whatever other offerings that you have as well, the deacons will be waiting on us during the time that Barry is singing taking up our offering this morning again a way that we just express our gratitude and praise for what God has done and what we celebrate this morning. So let's do that together now as we reflect and listen. And that as we gather together this morning, we have the honor of remembering you seeing you not only in these emblems, but in the many ways that you are present in our lives and in the lives of others, knowing that in the least of these, you are present. Lord, we pray that what we remember today might not only enrich the moments that we have together right now, but change the lives that we live as we leave here today. We are honored to remember you. We pray in Jesus' name. 